Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. Today's first lesson is from Isaiah, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in days to come the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, for that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against another nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk into the light of the Lord. You never know what is going to come down when you look up the family tree. Any of us who have engaged in, in ge genealogy, either casually or in depth, have often been surprised by the things that we learn, things that we discover, some things we just can't wait to share that story with somebody, and some stories are, well, it's part of the story, and you let it go at that. It's something I've enjoyed doing over the years as a little digging into my own tree, my own story, and seeing what happened and even how it impacts me today. Now, I've not forgotten our second lesson, but the format for today is I'm going to read a bit of Scripture, give you some commentary, and then the end, give some application. We're going through the family tree of Jesus as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. And it begins very simply in verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of, God, son of David, the son of Abraham. It begins there, and already Matthew is making three very powerful statements. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. Christ comes from the Greek form for Messiah making it very clear this is who he is, not just some nice guy, this is the Messiah. He is the son of David, clearly saying that he is part of the royal lineage. And he is the son of Abraham, connecting him to that promise given to Abraham centuries before, where God said, I will be your God, you will be my people Abraham responded. He is rooting it very deeply in the history and the story of the Hebrew people. And then it continues. Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Bit by bit, one word at a time carries the weight to say how Jesus is connected to their story. Abraham, the father of the people, and Isaac, who essentially took the story to the next place, but he is the child of promise. And then we have Jacob. Esau is not mentioned. Well, he's not in the family tree. But someone who knows the history would know that there were two brothers. That's a reminder that, yes, Jacob is the child of promise for all his shenanigans. Uh, He was that sort of rascally relative that sometimes you talk about and sometimes you don't. But to remind them that he is part of that line. And then he gets to Judah. Judah, the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar. We've already bumped in to a scandal. Now, this is um, what, for she is the first of four women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And some years ago, we did actually, as an Advent series, each week did the story behind the women. And quite frankly, it's PG-13. Look at Genesis 38, not now. Well, I won't go there. There are children present. But uh, maybe jot a note. Those of you at home, jot a note. Look it up. And you'll go, oh yeah, that's part of the Bible too. This story is a bit scandalous, but God redeems it. Tamar was a woman who was going to be deprived of her rights. And through a bit of trickery, she, be- she became a mother. And she is brought back into the family, so to speak. It's a reminder that God is working even in the midst of a bit of deception and dishonesty, God is still at work. And the story continues, Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. A lot is summarized in those few lines. We have Judah, his sons that follow, and then the people all go to Egypt, and for many years it is good there. And then for many years, it is bad as they are made slaves. And then there is the exodus. And that's covered in these generations. And the people are preserved. And they're brought to the promised land. They come, they're checking it out. And that's when we get to Rahab, woman number two. She is a, um, a working girl, as would have one time be euphemized in the city of Jericho. And uh, the spies come to check out the city, and she hides them. And she says to them, I'm aware of how your God has delivered your people, and your God, you will take this city. But basically she says, your lives for my lives and the lives of my family. Promise me that you will protect us, not hurt us when you take the city. And they make the promise Her house is built into the walls of the city, and they climb out the wall, repel off the wall with a rope, a string, however it could be referenced. 
I'm sure a very strong string or a very strong rope. And they say that's the signal. You use that rope, you tie it on the doorpost of your house. So when we take the city, we will know everybody inside is safe. And that's exactly what happens. She brings in all her family. They stay in that house. And while the city is destroyed, they are preserved and they live among the people. And she marries in to the people. She's brought in as a Gentile, a woman with a past. She is brought into the family. Generations continue. And then we have the lovely story of Ruth. She's a Moabitess. She marries a Hebrew man. He dies. His brother dies. The father-in-law dies. And the widow, the three widows, are left. One, at the urging of her mother-in-law, returns to her people in Moab. And then Ruth, though, says, I will stay with you. And they go into, into Judah, into Bethlehem, into the, the Bethlehem. And there they go. And she... Um, Ruth, being able to work, works as a gleaner. This was set up in Scripture, part of the safety network system, that people could, um, I say graze, glean, go into the harvest fields, take the grain that is left there. Uh, whatever Whatever fell was supposed to stay there. The corners were not to be touched, and the people who needed it could go in. She catches the eyes of Boaz, who keeps an eye on her, tells his men, do not harm her, do not hinder her, and tells her where the safe places are to be. The story is wonderful and deserves its own sermon at a later date. But essentially, it shows God's redemptive work and how Boaz has the right to some land. You marry, you buy the land, you get the the widow. He gets Ruth. They're in love, they marry, and from that union will come King David, who, of course, is mentioned here at the beginning. So there's great romance and great hope, hope that comes out of a desperate situation because Ruth was in a desperate place. And then it continues, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We're right back to a scandal. This is Bathsheba. Uh, the fourth woman to be in the family tree. It was a great indiscretion on the part of David that even led to a murder. And that is hinted there by saying the wife of Uriah. It's letting folks know that's the story of his inappropriate relationship with her. And yet God is still at work. Solomon is the greatest king, but in many respects he is the biggest failure as well. His heart was later turned away from the Lord, and that would lead ultimately to the downfall of both kingdoms. He is the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, bless his heart. The boy just wouldn't think and wouldn't listen, and under him the kingdom is divided into Israel and Judah. And yet things continue. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, 
and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. On and on it goes. Of those kings, some are good and some are bad. Hezekiah and Josiah, they're the best of the best. Under Josiah, there's a great revival, a time of renewal and recommitment. But we have Manasseh. He was a scumbum. He was terrible. Tradition says that the prophet Isaiah was martyred under his reign. You've got the good and the bad all there in the family tree. And then there's that phrase, and the deportation. The deportation. The time when the people went into exile, Judah falls. The city is destroyed. The great temple is burned. All the goods are stolen. And the people are sent into exile for 70 years. There was the exodus and then the exile. Those were the two historic events under which the Hebrew people understood their history. Think of the events that shape us the events through which we view history. There are many great ones and there are many challenging ones. References at time to the war, the depression, the death of a parent, the divorce, the addiction, the bankruptcy, loss of the family farm, reduced circumstances. That event is pivotal to their understanding and the family tree does not gloss over it. Yes, the deportation happened. And yet, it continues. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiodud, and Abiodud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Messiah. And so all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. The names continue through the years of exile, the time they were in Babylon. The people persevered. They remembered who they were. They tenaciously hung on to their faith. And then the people returned under the, under the Persians and they rebuilt it fits and starts the walls and the temples. We have several books that talk about that period of time. They, um, they struggled, the prophets. There's a time of prophecy to the people there. It speaks of the struggles that they continued to have when they got back. It didn't come back and all become perfect, but they continued to persevere. Think of a time when you began again a time that you reinvented yourself. It could be renewal in marriage or another marriage. 
a rebirth in your passion for your work, a restoration of your relationship with a family member or a friend, a move to a new city, or simply taking a new job. Usually, it took place one day at a time over a period of time. Some days were better than others. Some days you took several steps forward, and some days you took several steps back. But bit by bit, you went forward and you persevered. The names we have in this last section are really all that we know here. We don't know the backstory behind these people except they took the story forward. In your own family tree, there are people that essentially you know simply as names. And there are people, obviously, in our family trees, we go back far enough, we don't know who is back there. We can only go back so far. And yet there are people who are there whose decisions impact us and who we are today. And think of people in this church people that over the years have served, people, for those of you who grew up here, the people who taught you in Sunday school who are no longer here, but their memory is right up here. You might even be able to see them sitting in their regular pews. Think of the people who moved here to Columbus, were active in this church, contributed so much to it, and then they had to move to another town. And, uh, but still, their work continues Think of the people that built this community who made possible what we have today. We benefit from the works, the prayers of those who went before us. And these names are reminders of that. The road to Jerusalem begins with hope. That's our first Advent candle. This hope is rooted in a promise a promise given first to Abraham and renewed through Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And again and again over the centuries, there in the promised land, in Egypt, in the wilderness, back in the promised land, during the exile, and then back to the promised land, and that's even being renewed today with us. And what can we draw from this? Three words come to mind, honesty, promise, and purpose. I couldn't find a good P word to stand for honesty. If some of you out there know of it, you can tell me after the service. It begins, I want to say, with honesty. Honest about your story, whatever is part of your story. Again, looking at the family tree of Jesus, there are some things that, wow, you want to tell about that. Other things, best left unsaid, but they are there. And Jesus meets you wherever you are in your story. With all the good things, the things you can't wait to tell your friends or post on Facebook, and all the things that are best left unsaid. All those, what stays in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas kind of stories. He knows, and He meets you where you are. So we can begin this season with our honesty. And then we have the promise, God's restoration of the people and God's redemptive work, and it's going on today. 
He is at work in our brokenness. Wherever we are broken in our lives, God is at work. He does not just leave us at our story. Jesus does not leave us there. He calls us and works in us to restore and to make all things new. And there's a purpose for this, a direction for this restoration. God works out the divine purpose over time. We only get a glimpse. We have our our piece to play in the great story. Again, I think particularly of those in the time of the deportation and the return and wondered what's going on here. But their story, they kept the story going and going further. The will of God is love, and the love of God is not a sentiment in the divine mind. It's a purpose that is working out even now, even among us. The Holy Spirit is leading us once again to Bethlehem and once again to meet Jesus Christ. With all of our stories, the individual stories here and our collective stories, with all our challenges and all our successes, with our times of great focus and our lack of focus, He is here meeting us today. Today we can bring to Jesus your life once again, bring to Jesus your story, and simply ask, what is next? Which way do you have me to go? That's my prayer for myself and my family at this Advent is simply what is next. This is our story. Where are you taking us? And that is the prayer for this congregation. That is our prayer of hope for the coming season. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.